Hello, you're listening to the Academy Securities Geopolitical and Macro Strategy Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Robinson, and today is November 23rd, 2021. Today's episode is a recording from a recent webinar we held featuring Major General James Spider Marks, Lieutenant General Frank Kearney, Peter Chur, and Rachel Washburn. This webinar was focused on the global risks of nuclear proliferation. Welcome everyone to Academy Security's latest geopolitical webinar. Today we'll be discussing the risks of nuclear proliferation with a focus on the nuclear negotiations with Iran and the recent hypersonic missile tests by China. Today I'm joined by Academy's Geopolitical Advisory Board members, General Frank Kearney and General Spider Marks. General Kearney served as the House Armed Services Committee National Defense Panel, Secretary of Defense's WMD Threat Reduction Advisory Committee, and on the Iran Project. General Spider Marks, our head of geopolitical strategy, served as the lead intelligence officer on the Korean Peninsula. Recent issues around nuclear proliferation may not move markets dramatically, but our head of macro strategy, Peter Chur, will help contextualize the insights from General Marks and General Kearney in order to better help you understand this complex and sometimes daunting topic. To start off this conversation, let's go ahead and set a baseline about where we are currently with the Iran nuclear negotiations. The last administrations pulled us out of the JCPOA, and the current administration is trying to reestablish a new negotiation framework. General Spider-Marks, we'd love to have you start out uh, and discuss the current um, state of those negotiations. Well, I would think, well, first of all, Rachel and everybody, thank you so much for for joining this podcast today. Um, Again, Academy Securities wouldn't be in a place where we are today, being able to help veterans transition without your support. So thank you very, very much for that. Look, this administration stated up front that they were looking to try to expand and broaden the terms of the JICPOA, the Iran nuclear deal, in order to offer a way for the United States and establish a way for the United States to get back on board. I think that's now been, that door has kind of closed as a result of uh, some of the efforts that have been made by the Iranians to increase their enriched uranium and the level to which that uranium has been enriched. Look, the primary problem that we have with where we were with the previous deal where we are today is a thing called break breakout. How much time would it take for the Iranians to have? How long would it take for them to create a nuclearized weapon? Uh, they've got the enrichment program ongoing. How long would it take for them to now weaponize all that, stick it on a missile and be able to transport it or at least send it someplace else? Um, what Iran has achieved over the course of this administration, and clearly at the end of the previous administration, is an increase in the production of their uranium to include in locations that have not been declared to the, I, to the IAEA. And that's really kind of at the heart of the problem. What that means is, is that they're now in a position to have leverage over any type of a deal that the United States tries to strike. It changes the dynamic and the variables in terms of what that might look like going forward. So I would say, in at least in my view, the executive summary is the United States wants to create a JICPOA-like arrangement, not to simply get back into the JICPOA as it was. So it's up to the United States to establish good intelligence collection, partners in the arena, to, in other words, to have diplomatic solutions around which we can now monitor this thing with other partners. Sanctions very much need to be a part of it. The Iranians always put on the table before we talk about anything, you got to drop the sanctions. That's cart in front of the horse. But if you could do intel, you could do diplomacy, and then you can come up with what a JECPOA 2 
might look like, now we're in a position where we can move forward. We always then reserve the right, the fourth option, which is military actions, some type of covert or overt operations, which would include obviously, and let's be frank, the Israelis, um, if we were gonna move down that path. General Kearney, I guess on the lines of how nations are always gonna act in their best self-interest, why is it so important from a US perspective that we keep Iran from developing a nuclear weapon? And you know, maybe you can talk a little bit about from how they see it um, from, from their seat in the Middle East. Well, you, you, when you when you think about Iran, you got to think about um, much like China, a nation who has a great history, was a world power, um, and and as a result, they feel over the years they have been treated uh, poorly uh, by the international community, uh, and in particular uh, since the uh, you know the, the the coup and the takeover in 1979, the um, the Iranians and the North Koreans, most people who seek nuclear weapons really seek power, okay? It, it's not the use of a weapon system that is in their best interest. It brings them to the bargaining table. It means we have to have conversations with them. So from their, their standpoint, moving the ball down the road means that we have to have a conversation. They also believe that they have an inherent right uh, to develop nuclear power, uh, use nuclear power uh, in, in, in their own self-interest. And of, of course, you know, the Ayatollah previously had put out a fatwa that said they would not ever develop a nuclear weapon. That was the standing policy. They've had a huge change in political leadership to hardliners at this particular point in time, which makes the negotiations even a little bit more difficult as they look inward to how they're treated, how they do things. Uh, another big point is Iranian nationalism. I think we were moving along a path where they had a giant youth bulge that wanted to re-enter the world that was listening, that was connected through uh, all types of internet platforms and things like that and growing. So knowledge about the outside world competes with the Islamic narrative of the uh, Islamic Republic uh, of Iran. So part of this is just a giant power play. Uh, the second piece is nationalism to keep their own people, uh, you know, leaning towards their own government. You've got to have a great Satan like the United States in the West to be able to focus things. And if you recall the discussions about the Iranian uh, guards, the IRGC, the Revolutionary Guards Corps, they have one purpose. Their purpose is to sustain the revolution. And they are embedded in most of the Iranian uh, businesses now. The retired IRGC folks are, are doing all that. They really run the military, uh, even though there are separate branches of the military that are not IRGC related. The leadership comes with. And they also are completely involved in developing who the political candidates will be that run. They're part of the councils that make those decisions. So when you look at the power dynamics in Iran, having... Um, Having an argument to your own people that you have the right to have nuclear power, the right to have nuclear weapons, and the enemies in the West are trying to suppress us and keep us down and sanction us, you have really the justification and the baseline for how they see the world, how they respond to us. And uh, I, would, I would add to, to, to some of Spider's remarks, you know, recently they have uh, begun to enrich uranium to 60%. And I think um, many people understand that, you know, nuclear grade weapons uranium is about 90% or higher. 
So we've reduced what the chick, the original JICPOA's goal was to have a one-year runway, okay, so that we had that much time to take diplomatic, military, economic actions through different measures to be able to retard uh, the path that they were on. That right now, by some experts at 60%, is compressed to two months, potentially, where you can move forward. They've also recently, again, and this is not the first time, but they've made metallic uranium. So the next phase of taking, you know, the products of uh, the centrifuges uh, and the rods and then making uh, the beginnings of the metal that would be shaped into in the right, you know, you know weights to be able to create a reaction is, is, is again occurring. And all these are very overt. They're not hiding it, although we don't have people inside collecting uh, specific data. But these are all things on the bargaining table. This is where they will go as opposed to uh, limiting their ability to influence and do malign behavior in the Middle East and around the world. Uh, you know, so what they're doing is they're elevating the stakes so that we will take them down uh, through a nuclear negotiation rather than the other things with missile technology and their activities uh, to influence the Middle East. So, I'll quiet down for a minute uh, and, and let somebody else jump in. Well, well, no, you know, what Frank just indicated is that there also is an obligation on the part of the IAEA, the governing body and the inspection, the inspectors, in order to provide the insights to do exactly what Frank described. And I don't know that it'd be fair to call the IAEA a feckless organization, but in order for the United States which really has a, a large dog in this fight here, to feel confident that the information is flowing forward, we have to be that much more embedded in terms of what those inspections look like. And that's a non-starter from the Iranians. So the, the breakout or the runway period, as Frank described, is now have, has been so incredibly truncated. We're at, we're at the point now where it could be one of those no-notice type of, of events where suddenly Iran declares through testing that they've got a nuclear capability, and we could be totally surprised by that. A lot of uh, the nuclear uh, capable nations out there don't test. Like the Israelis have never tested, though we all know they have the capability. Because if you test, you are now declared, and uh, you know it, it adds to the proliferation piece. And so the Israelis have never declared because, quite honestly, we talk about a uh, you know an, a nuclear proliferation race in the, in the Middle East. There there has been one going on for some time between the Israelis and different Middle Eastern partners out there. Uh, yet we have been able through negotiations to keep our Arab allies, the GCC countries, who use nuclear power for water purification and things because it takes so much energy to do so from moving forward uh, with nuclear uh, development and, and really the same kind of missile development that the Iranians have had to reach out and touch the United States and all of our shipping. You both touched on a couple of things that I find really interesting and that I wanted to build on. Uh, first, with Israel not... Um, formally declaring or acknowledging their nuclear capabilities, that in a sense to avoid um, some element of scrutiny and international legal obligation on how to manage their program? No, in, in my view, the, the Israelis have never acknowledged it. It is a known fact. I mean, it's almost declared if you were to, if you were to look at it. Um, but there is an obligation to open yourself up to the, or at least, not necessarily to be a signatory to the non-proliferation treaty, 
but which is embedded in the IAEA's work and the United Nations, both the Security Council and the General Council. Um, Israel doesn't necessarily get in line with that directly. Our relationship with Israel puts us in a position of a level of confidence that they are in fact walking the path that allows them with a level of confidence to have this capability. And they certainly reserve the right to, to have it. Um, that becomes the sticking point in terms of our presence, our influence in the Middle East. Iran would say immediately, it, well, in fact, the latest, the, the, the new, um, um, I can't remember his name in Israel, Bennett, the new leader in Bennett has indicated, look, we will not stand for Iran to have a nuclear weapon. Iran's immediate response to that is, how can you tell us not to have a nuclear weapon when you do? And clearly Iran only has, in their mind, uh, peaceful, at least peaceful, peaceful ambitions for their nuclear weapons. Clearly that's a subterfuge and we know that that's a challenge. But that type of a relationship, Frank has already described, which is really at the crux of the issue here, Israel has them, the world knows they have them, but they haven't declared it. How they walk the line is through relations with us where we know that their mechanisms for control over that weapon system, those capabilities match ours. So speaking to the nation's self-interest, obviously in this scenario, Israel does get a vote. Uh, the recent advancements being reported out of Iran. What are we concerned about as far as how Israel will address these advancements? They've uh, been involved in some sort of kinetic um, sabotage in the past. Do we anticipate something like that happening again, given the recent reports? And how does the U.S. manage that uh, dynamic? Israel has a, a lot of different capabilities and has demonstrated in the past. They have been more than willing to eliminate knowledge through the human that's carrying that knowledge. Okay, so they are not afraid at all to take out technology experts in the nuclear field. Uh, a lot of them now, of course, are not separated uh, into a military organization. They teach at Tehran University. They have all those things in there. So that gives the Iranians the opportunity to say, hey, you're coming in here and killing civilian professors rather than military scientists. Again, a lot of this is about world opinion uh, in, in how we see things. They have cyber capabilities, which uh, they have demonstrated uh, can be used and have allegedly done so in the past, uh, uh, as, as well as the allegations against the United States in cooperation with them. The Israelis have limited capability to destroy or eliminate the ability of the Iranians to do things. So if you take the, the real strong point of Fordow, uh, which is under geographic formations dug in there, Israeli weapon systems, and they have the F-35 now, and it's a stealth capability, uh, but it, it can carry up to about 18,000 pounds of ordnance, but that's with a lot of it hanging outside, which makes it less stealthy. Uh, but the largest bomb they carry is a 5,000-pound uh, bomb, and, and maybe they could carry two on the wings, but they'd probably be detected on the way in if they did that. That will not destroy uh, the, the, the shelter uh, and the geographic formations around Fordham. The United States has built a 25,000-pound uh, massive ordnance penetrator to be able to do that, and we have two platforms that can carry that bomb and deliver it, one stealth and one not. Uh, and so when you take a look at what it would take for the Israelis to do this, they would have to they would have to take off heavy. They'd have to have a lot of their air aircraft carrying things. You'd have to do repeated strikes 
Uh, and they would get one shot at it because once the air defense systems come on, we are now in a in in you know in, in a different situation where they can't repeat re-engage the target after a battle damage assessment. And if they did it without U.S. Uh, coordination and support, then we would all be in a terrible situation. And and you would you would have to expect that the Iranians will respond, and to an unprovoked attack on a, a peaceful nuclear, you know, capability that we're developing for energy purposes, uh, you know, you, you, you'll get an argument in there and it'll go to the UN and there'll be all kinds of issues. And likely, you know, the four uh, global players that uh, will, will fight against anything in the United States will align behind them. I mean, the, the Chinese, the Russians, uh, the North Koreans uh, will be with the Iranians and viewing that as a hostile act and we'll, we'll go forward. But again, they, it won't do things. Now they can hit uh, surface in low kind of places, but when you look at where they are, they're all very deep in Iran. They're all in and around the Tehran, Esfahan area. And Esfahan is one of the most culturally uh, diverse areas in Iran historically. And I know when I was part of the Iran project and we were briefing Iranian uh, citizens in the United States, they were aghast that uh, we would even consider doing that and releasing hexafluorine gas into the atmosphere, which uh, would, would have a devastating effect. The, the other thing when you look at Israel, Israel, I mean, the Iranians are unlikely to use a nuclear weapon against Israel. Who surrounds Israel? All Arab nations. There is gonna be fallout, especially if it's a ground penetrating burst, you're gonna have a great deal of that. If it's an air burst, you're still gonna have radiation that moves and it'll move on the wind, the wind of that particular day. Hopefully they've done their homework on weather patterns and, uh, and, and know where it's going to go. Um, similarly, I don't think uh, the Israelis would use a nuclear weapon because the, you know, just becoming the second nation to use a nuclear weapon to destroy nuclear facilities will be in a different place in the world. Uh, and I, I, so I, I think it's a, uh, it's a declaration uh, politically by the Israelis uh, to, to gain global support, you know, for their position. But I think in both cases, it's unrealistic that um, they could attack and be as successful as they had, like taken out a Syrian plant when it was being built. You know, you can get away with that kind of stuff. But, uh, you know, that a release will kill people, uh, a lot of people. Over. You know, we, what Frank described is really an Israeli desire to to eliminate, but really a capability to disrupt the development of Iranian nuclear capabilities. Um, the counterbalance to that is if the Iranians were to achieve that capability, then clearly the Saudis would have that capability. And then we have a, a condition that Frank just described so very well, that is untenable. Um, and the results of that kind of a posturing, not even with, with an exchange are almost unacceptable. You know, I would imagine um, around the kitchen table in a whole bunch of towns and cities in Iran, you know, if their young son comes to the table and says, hey, mom, hey, dad, you know, I really want to grow up and be a nuclear physicist. I would hope I would bet mom and dad would go, hey, 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 let's let's have a conversation about another industry vertical you can get into. I mean, you put yourself, as Frank described, you put yourself at great risk. You start walking around with that type of capability under your arm. Um, you've got crosshairs on you. The other side of this is should there be an error and something occur? This is when, you know, historically, 
Iranian action in the Middle East has affected oil prices, you know, anything in the Straits, anything that would would reduce the flow of tankers uh, doing things. We, we have a more robust capability globally to react to that now. But if you look at the threat of nuclear war occurring, if Israel attacks, you know, uh, Iran and then there's some response, I think it would have a, a global economic impact, at least for a period of time in there. And I know uh, that's just that's the kind of stuff that China doesn't want to see, you know, that everybody China really would like the economic system to work really well while they behind the scenes develop their capabilities to do the things they need to do. Yeah, they would benefit from this. Yeah, and that's a perfect segue into my next question before we get um, Peter's take. Gentlemen, just want to hear the previous strategy, last 18 months of, well, really 36 months of applying pressure on Iran around these negotiations had a very international um, coalition and um, drive get our partners to help put the same economic pressure on Iran. Hopefully this will influence the outcome of the negotiations. Obviously, as you already mentioned, there are other uh, nations and other parties providing some re economic relief on the backside of our um, organized effort. Today, where, what is that international coalition to um, confront Iran's nuclear ambitions look like? Um, has it been effective? Is it currently effective? Um, you know, we'd just love to hear your thoughts on the current state of that. Uh, just real quickly up front, and, and then I'll defer to Frank, is the European signatories to the JICPOER were shocked and clearly concerned with what Frank described, which is the declaration, or at least the understanding now, that Iran has enriched uranium to 60%, which was unheard of previously, and that there haven't been these linear, very precise steps. There's been a leap function in terms of Iran capabilities. So it's really tossed what might have been in 2015 when the JICPOA was signed, um, a sense of optimism that there could be some controls as we go down the path, which would have been eventually by 2025 or 2030, a breakout in terms of a whole host of nuke capabilities within Iran. Um, I think there's been a shattering of that confidence that we now have a controlled mechanism. So I think it changes the dynamic. I think the increase in terms of partnerships, it's an opportunity for the United States to increase partnerships and to strengthen sanctions against the Iranians where they stand right now, not to embrace them based on this leap function that they've occurred, uh, achieved. Yeah, a, a, a different and a more bleak view of that is, I look at this economically as well and go, the, uh, you know, the European nations, the Russians, the Chinese, they all want to trade with Iran. Uh, you know, there are a lot of contracts that were in place that are now all threatened or passe uh, based on the fact that the United States unilaterally pulled out of the JICPOA without really consulting with our partners. Um, there's no rolling things back. I mean, I think we have, <laughs> we, we have to really kind of be realists when we look at this and go, hey, you can't kill knowledge. Uh, you can't kill how far they've moved in technological development of the military capability to do things. They will be able to get there at some point in time. What is an acceptable, you know, uh, level of, of Iranian capability uh, that that the Europeans, the Russians, the Chinese will will all accept, uh, and and how will the U.S. fit into it? There is no trust. Okay, there was none before the Chikpoa. 
We had a few years of good success. We've broken what little trust there was. And I, I firmly believe that without a U.S. Um, initial step that says we will roll back if you resign, you know, uh, or we roll back something that they will not come to the table until they're much further along. Um, there's this global brinksmanship. They've watched the Chinese do it uh, with what they're doing with their capabilities, the things they're doing inside of the, uh, you know, the, the Pacific area that's, that's contested, uh, overflights of Taiwan, interdicting missile technology. And they've watched the Russians do it in the Ukraine and in other areas where if you take the U.S. to the brink, uh, you know, we, we can't react fast enough with our national security decision-making system to take actions, to do things. And then they go, well, do you, do you want to bomb it? Okay. And the answer really will be, we don't really want to have a nuclear gas release over Iran, either done by the United States or uh, the Israelis uh, unilaterally without some sort of global support for, for that military action. So, I mean, you know, I, I think I think you're going to see it go to the brink, and then I think you'll see. All right, how how are the key players going to act? Who's going to who's going to give away first? Because saving face is huge, and not having a national embarrassment by the current administration and the religious leadership in Iran with its people is extraordinarily important to maintaining their support uh, in a, in a world where if they were interacting with it, they would probably have a better life. And I want to ask Peter. You know we. General Marks kind of joked about uh, the bad rep that nuclear gets specific to Iran, but that transcends the geopolitical nature of this conversation. Um, and as General Kearney mentioned earlier, when we were, we were chatting, nuclear proliferations, no matter how benign, whether it's for energy or desalinization, that, that, that's the first stage of nuclear proliferation. So Peter, why should our clients and partners care about this conversation. How does this overlap with the emerging ESG space? And um, would love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, I think, you know, the first part of this conversation has been, you know, great. I think the good one positive takeaway is, you know, both generals really talked about nuclear proliferation, much more about showing power rather than actual use. So I think there's a degree of comfort we can all take in that, that, that risk of, you know, some sort of nuclear event is highly unlikely. Um, having said that, I think one thing General Kearney just mentioned that I think is a real issue and we've been talking about for a while is almost this three-pronged approach that we are facing where Russia, China, and Iran all acting, maybe not in concert, but at the same time, each with their own agenda, is a very difficult situation for us. And I think uh, when we look at what's going on with Taiwan, there was just, you know, the meeting or summit, I guess they called it via Zoom or whatever they were using um, with Xi and Biden. And Taiwan came up a lot. And you know, I am concerned that I think we underestimate the timeline that we could see friction in Taiwan, ju not just because of what China's doing, but our eye has taken off the ball in many places. We're looking at a lot of these things. And when I come back to nuclear, though, you know, I, I find that a lot of it very interesting right now. You've seen the price of uranium double. And Europe is starting, I think, to you know, move towards reinvigorating their nuclear industry. Um, I think France just announced six new uh, plants to be built. There's talk that they would need as many as 14 new plants to meet their ESG goals or sustainability goals. Um, you know, you've got the power crisis there. So I think you're going to see more and more people turning to nuclear energy. And we, and I think even in the U.S., and again, it's been one of our long running themes is the goal of sustainability is great. A lot of it's been done with very little planning at this stage. And I think you're seeing the worst of it in Europe where 
they didn't have enough, you know, interim, you know, capabilities, even domestically, I think you're seeing some of that, right? We had massive underinvestment in fossil fuels for the last five years, and it's not, you can just snap your fingers and turn the spigot back on. It's more complicated than that. So I think people could turn to nuclear a little bit more. The U.S., you know, has not had nuclear in any way, shape, or form, except maybe, you know, in the Navy. Um, where do you see that going? Do you see nuclear power becoming more, you know, topical again? And what implications does that have for nuclear proliferation? And you can only hope that the United States will get on board. It's the fastest way to reduce dependency on fossil fuels, clearly for electricity. And if we're going to go to electrification of automobiles, you know, there's still coal, oil, and fossil fuels powering electric plants in the United States, even though we have hydroelectric, we have a wind, we have a lot of different things, but a lot of it's still right there. And so nuclear power presents that the history of success with nuclear capability in the United States Navy is one that the United States ought to be proud of. The uh, leaders in Congress ought to look at that and say, what are we afraid of? Uh, and, and, you know, even as we talked earlier, the Three Mile Island, uh, you know, uh, stuff was, was really minimal uh, in comparison to what could have happened because the safeguards were there and we, we thought we were very thoughtful about how to do those things. Um, we need to, my personal belief is we need to move there. Um, it, it also, oddly, on a military side, you know, if you want to use laser, uh, what are largely called rail guns now from naval vessels that are nuclear power to use lasers to interdict things, we need a little bit more power <laughs> in a lot of places to be able to do that with the amount of ubiquity that we will need to be able to intercept uh, hypersonics, to intercept uh, uh, a volley of, uh, of, of things in some sort of missile exchange, whether it's nuclear or whether it's conventional warheads on there. So we, we, we don't have enough of any of the things we really need right now. And by putting them on naval vessels, we have given them power, but we've given them mobility so that we could mass them based on a crisis uh, occurring and us sensing it in enough time to be able to mass the resources that we do have in places uh, to do things. Even when we talked about uh, putting in interceptors in Europe, to intercept the uh, Iranian missile capability, if should they develop it, uh, you know they, we we had to negotiate with the Russians and other people about all right, this this changes the you know the equation with us. If you put more of them in here, yet you purport that they're for you know an, an Iranian intercept or something like that. Uh, I mean, it's a very complex set of negotiations that go on out there, but clearly. We don't have enough, especially as we move into the hypersonic era. Yeah, when you talk about clean energy production, you're talking nuke as nuke power generation. And we just don't hear that discussion at all. It doesn't come up. It's not part of the narrative. And I, and I can't understand why it's not. Some of it's what do you do with the... Uh, you know, the nuclear, uh, the rods that you don't do, the nuclear waste, those kind of things. And, uh, you know, we, 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 I think the United States has that discussion. I think it was Yucca Mountain or whatever, where they were talking about doing those things. You just have to uh, take a look at where technology can take us for disposal properly, safety-wise, that we don't do more harm to the environment uh, with nuclear byproducts than we, than we do with uh, fossil fuels. It's hard to see that now. But I mean, what are the nations who use it a lot doing? I mean, what's, what's the French plan? We can learn a lot from others. We just 
sometimes have some hubris and arrogance here in the United States. And we look back in history uh, about small things uh, that uh, prevent us from, uh, from moving forward and doing something which makes perfect sense. And the discussion of this clearly takes you out to the, in, the desired end state and you work yourself back from that. Well, the end state is when all these rods are used, where do, um, it starts with what are we going to do with this stuff when we're done with it? Okay, let's have a full discussion on that because all of these steps are doable, they're clear, they're understandable, and they're attainable. And I've never really understood why we haven't put nukes straight up on the top of the list of discussion topics for alternatives. Do you, either of you know what the Navy does with theirs for their fleet? I, I, I don't know um, how they deactivate the uh, power plants. I mean, they, they basically shut down the capability for the reactor uh, to do things, but I don't know what they do with uh, the other components of these systems uh, worthy of exploration, but they obviously do something. Uh, and it's obviously not publicly uh, available, or we would be reading about it or knowing about it, or it would be, you know, so, some e ecological group would already be on that thing, uh, really tearing it apart. So, you know, I, I'm not sure. And I think that's worthy of, uh, of exploration. Yeah. Well, General Kern, you mentioned hypersonic missiles. Certainly no geopolitical discussion from our team would be complete without addressing the latest tension with China. Um, we've actually seen a ratcheting up around the globe of uh, military posturing. Um, some of our adversaries, some of our partners, potential partners, uh, displaying their um, munitions and, and military capabilities um, more publicly, uh, including China. They've tested some um, new technology that we weren't aware that they had. Um, that was kind of, as uh, General Milley described, a Sputnik moment for us. Um, General Marks would love to hear your thoughts on um, this new information with regard to Chinese military capability? Well, the first thing we heard when the Chinese declared, or at least we figured out that they were doing some hypersonic testing, and the, and the Russians have done that as well. The Russians now have fielded two capabilities, the avant-garde and the zircon, which are five times the speed of sound, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and the Chinese have done that. So they're at a lower stage. The first thing you hear from the United States is, we need $4 billion additional money that we haven't asked for so that we can do some advanced testing, both offensively and some of that to be put toward defensive capabilities. And Frank's already talked about what some of those might look like in terms of how do you get after hypersonics. The problem with hypersonics vis-a-vis -vis our cruise missile experience is cruise missiles can take a, a pattern, but they generally are a pattern that can become pretty predictable. Uh, hypersonics, have a capability of being very low, excessively fast, and can be very random, which makes it very difficult for to intercept. So the defensive side of that can certainly, we can crack that nut. That's, that's not a challenge. We simply have to get about the business of doing it. The concern that I have is that we're now being very responsive to other nations' initiatives, which tends to be what we do historically. Look, our our national geostrategic strategy for 40 plus years was a thing called containment totally defensive in nature. It worked, so we, look, we, we created that muscle memory, but now we, over the course of the last 40 years, have not been able to really effectively break out of that in a way that really gives us a sense of trying to set the tone of what the engagement might look like. And I'm not suggesting it is just kinetic in nature, but clearly the Russians and the Chinese need to improve their military, military capabilities. Ergo, it becomes responsive to us in terms of what we want to do as they increase. 
there's a, there's a lot that has to be done. We are behind. And I think that's where the, the nexus of the Sputnik moment is, is they're, they're doing things. But hypersonics are not new. Okay, um, all our ICBMs all are hypersonic on re-entry. Okay, but they are very predictable, as Spider said, in the nature. They're a par parabolic, uh, you know, flight path. Once it goes up, hits boost phase, goes into the atmosphere. We have enough satellites to be able to track through the radar systems that are out there watching these in enough places. We can see when it reaches apogee where it will come down and the path that it will take. Some of the reentry vehicles have limited ability to steer, but the big thing about hypersonics is they only go up about 19 miles for hypersonic, you know, glide type vehicle. Uh, they don't go to that high arc. They come up, they come down, and a lot of them have, uh, you know, boost energy engine capability on them to be able to steer shape. Uh, and I suspect as uh, our, our competitors, you know, are, are more and more in space. They know the uh, the pattern of our radar. They know where the gaps are, just like when we're terrain flying. And so they're able to then do that. And and we're not able to see until you get reentry where it is that's coming. And then it's moving, uh, as, as Spider said, I mean, five times is the definition, but there's some that are going nine to 12 times the speed of sound up there. So they are moving at lightning speed with different payloads. Um, I mean, and they have the ability to circle the globe multiple times if they need to, to be able to, to, to do whatever they want. I mean, so it's not just going up and you got gravity taking over, penetrating the, the atmosphere and coming back down. Um, the constellation of satellites that we would need to have uh, full coverage is something that is almost cost prohibitive. So, you know, this, the other thing, just like we did with, uh, you know, the Soviet Union, we, the Reagan administration really went after, you know, a, a cost burden to them. I mean, we are in a cost burden as we decide all the things we want to spend, uh, you know, the U.S. Uh, taxpayers money on here. And the Chinese and the Russians are very, very smart by inventing and innovating in things that would cause us to have to spend more money. And the competition in space is just continues to grow and will continue to grow um, as, as we move forward. And I think, Rachel, you talked about other, other nations with their missile technology. I mean, everybody, everybody wants to be in space. NASA's Artemis program, uh, where they plan to ultimately go to Mars, they plan to have an orbiter around the moon to be able to resupply a ground station on the moon uh, in order to launch from the southern pole of the moon and reduce the time and distance to get to Mars to do things. So you're looking at the colonization of space, which will lead to the weaponization of interplanetary vehicles, uh, rotating vehicles, even more so than we have today. So imagine an energy capability on the moon that, you know, would, would be able to be able to interdict things in space. So um, this is Star Wars kind of things, but from a science uh, you know, point of view, some of these things are feasible. The question is at what cost and at what timeline? Yeah, you know, I think when you think about this from both an investor and a corporate sort of, you know, there are going to be opportunities coming from this competition in hypersonic. And, you know, it seems like all roads lead to space now as well. We've held a couple of webinars about space. It comes up more and more frequently. And, you know, the big hype is obviously the people flying into space. And now that, you know, you've got, you know, uh, personal companies effectively doing that. But I think the real growth is going to be still, how do we compete for space? How do we work in space? 
how do we take advantage of space? How do we commercialize space? Um, and you know, it sounds like some of these things that with the hypersonic capabilities, it's going to force us in a direction that causes investment and it's going to create opportunities for either new companies or existing companies to build out in those fields. Because you know, we're always watching whether it's the defense industry or other industries, right? Where's the future going to be? What are people in, you know, what technologies, what companies do you want to own today or invest in today to move forward? And it seems like this is a radically enough change in what's going on that it's striking them, you know, for better or for worse, the right amount of fear to, you know, create, you know, an attempt to build out and defend it or to, you know, be aggressive on it. So I think people are supposed to be looking more and more to space as what's the future there? How does that, you know, how do we conquer space or, you know, take advantage of it and use it? And there's going to be big opportunities there. And, you know, it frames this geopolitical discussion much differently, right? It's not just, you know, what we're used to, but there's, you know, the space out there that, it's been, I think, somewhat taken for granted. Obviously, the companies involved that have been doing very well, but it doesn't seem like it's a part of everyone's daily or weekly dialogue, and it, maybe it should be coming more of that. When you look at the um, interim national security strategy um, that this administration put out, it speaks to, you know, we've got to make sure we invest in cyber, both offensive, defensive, technology advancements, and terrorism, and those are kind of three big things. But there's precious little talk about what Peter was just mentioning, you know, our our use of and the necessary competition and what is the cooperation going to look like in space? And then there's also precious little discussion about nukes, other than in response to what we hear from the Chinese, going from about 290 nukes, declaring that by 2030, they're probably going to have a thousand years, they're probably going to have 700. And they're and which which is typical of the Chinese, you know, they will tell you they will hide in plain sight. They will tell you exactly what their intentions are. Then they will go about the business of meeting those expectations that they establish, and they tell the world all about it. Um, we should be very, very conscious of what our presence looks like in space across the board, and not just in terms of these individual, I would call, initiatives that are wonderful, but how does that affect all of government in terms of how we want to posture ourselves? Yeah, I mean, cyber is something that touches everybody every day. So they've got their arms around it. They're anxious about it. They're worried about what happens with their children. They're worried about influence in elections. What goes on in space beyond satellites that move digits quickly around the world for people to use to, you know, different different distribution systems on the on the on the planet, they are not as concerned. Uh, they also don't know how vulnerable a lot of that stuff is, how old it is, and how in order to change it, you need to get up there with, you know, this is why you have commercial space, you have Blue Origin, SpaceX, Sierra Nevada, they're all out there to be able to service platforms. So they all start with the space station because that's easy. But, you know, rendezvous with a satellite, uh, you know, to be able to then capture it, change technology on it. These are going to be things that have to occur for viability in the future uh, as the pace of technology changes uh, to be able to upgrade things rather than launch. I mean, there's so much stuff up there that you can't just keep putting things there. I mean, you know, it's we talk about airspace management and combat. We talk about the uh, you know, airspace management with uh, with with, with uh, flight, uh, but we have to manage space. And the United States has been the manager of the space catalog for the United Nations for many many years, which is advantageous to us. I mean, we publish it, we see it, we know it. But there's a lot of stuff that deteriorates. There's a lot of junk up there. Uh, you know, you almost have to go, all right, how do I, it's, it's sort of like, uh, 
you know, cleaning your blood, <laughs> you know, you, you know, you, you got to, got to go through, we got, we got to go up there and fly around and pick up the stuff that can have an impact on the architecture that's there that supports uh, international uh, economic uh, viability, as well as everything else we've become used to. It is, uh, it is a threat and something to think about just even beyond hypersonic flight and the things that we are looking at from a military point of view. Yeah, I actually want to jump in here um, while we're on the topic of space, um, because with the recent uh, missile test or anti-satellite uh, missile test by Russia, there is a, a new element of space debris out there. I actually reached out to one of our other advisory board members, Captain Wendy Lawrence, a NASA astronaut, and asked her if she had any experience with um, impact of space debris while she was on the International Space Station. And she shared some images of me or with me of um, uh, an impact that was suspected to be a fleck of paint on the International Space Station. The damage was pretty remarkable considering the size of debris. So I think much like nuclear proliferation, as we see competition in space, the stakes are really high and it's going to require an extreme amount of cooperation because if a fleck of paint or a tiny bit of um, cosmic dust can cause that much damage, imagine if nations are blowing up satellites and not communicating with other um, things in space that you know are keeping our <laughs> Our financial institutions um, running our military communications up. It's the stakes are really, really high, and um, it, her insights were quite remarkable. Um, at this time, definitely want to take some questions from the audience in the last few minutes that we have um, along the topic of hypersonic missiles. And General Kern, you kind of touched on this. Um, how developed are the United States capabilities around this technology? And um, should we not be focusing on this based off of, you know, how competitive we are in this landscape? You know, so one, we have the technological, technological capability to do these things. I mean, you know, our, our, our nuclear program uh, has the right guidance, navigation, computing, has rad hardened ships, has all the things that you need to do this. The question is, is getting the glide vehicle uh, built uh, and, and being able to then put things inside of it that uh, survive uh, exiting the atmosphere, coming back in, radiation, uh, different things that enter. And it's, it's very costly. It's not that we are not capable. It's just we have chosen not to move fast enough. You know, the, the Army, and uh, I don't quite understand sometimes how the service, the Army was the lead for the glide vehicle for our hypersonic Things. I mean, you know, when you would you would think that that would be with a different service, in, in my opinion. Uh, but that you had the Navy has got part of it. Part of the way we do business is we spread that out between different companies and different kind of uh, service uh, oversight, and then you try to bring it together uh, with uh, you know a, a prime contractor as an integrator. Whereas our competitors are doing this with state. Uni unified kind of effort with teams that are working holistically to get things done. We also compete everything uh, through the way we do business. So the way we uh, develop things for military use is an inhibitor to moving quickly. Uh, you know, and you, you see that in every kind of thing, but in particular, this is where it is. We have the knowledge, we have the technology, we have the experience. We could do this if it becomes a national priority and do it very, very quickly, I believe. And um, General Marks, before we um, get another question from the audience, definitely wanted to cover lessons learned from uh, North Korea. Um, 
how, how you manage a country that is intent on developing their nuclear program um, despite international pressure. What can we learn from how we manage that dynamic and that relationship um, in the current state of uh, geopolitical competition? Yeah, the challenge with North Korea is that that really is a nation where we have not been able to affect or alter behavior. I mean, it is the definition of a recidivist nation. Um, they continue to conduct um, military advancement at the, at the cost of any type of civil advancement or concern for the citizens and uh, the people of North Korea. It is an incredibly brutal regime, yet it defies every definition in terms of how you exercise influence. Um, the United States, with its partners, you know, certainly Japan, South Korea, the United States, China certainly has a vested interest, as does Russia. But it's now become North Korea, as we know. North Korea is a global threat. They've been able to produce nuclear weapons. We estimate they have between 30 and 40. They have not been able to weaponize those, those nuclear warheads. Um, they have been able to produce sufficient, sufficiently enriched uranium to produce about six warheads a year. At least those are the estimates that we have. But it's so incredibly difficult to penetrate the regime, really put experts on the ground in different types of capacities to see what their munitions development looks like, what their ballistics look like, what their chip manufacturing looks like, where are they getting this, irrespective of our efforts to try to apply, uh, apply sanctions as well. So I don't see any immediate change in terms of um, the global relationship, and that's the way I would call it, the global re relationship with North Korea going forward. It simply is a matter of intense intelligence collection as best we can, watching, and then trying to determine where some particular weaknesses might be that we can exploit. Clearly, we tried to make nice with the Trump administration, and that went sideways pretty quickly. And we've been incredibly hard with the North Koreans for decades. That has not generated results. We are where we are. Along those same, same lines, a question from the audience. Do you view that there's a risk for an arms race in Asia um, to counter these regional threats, i.e. China and uh, North Korea? Well, it's happening right now. I'll, I'll be very brief and, and then turn it over to Frank. I mean, it, it's an arms race that's ongoing right now. We've seen the Chinese develop, further develop the islands that have been contested. They now have taken ownership of some of those islands. Um, China and the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia are competing very strongly um, in Indonesia. Indonesia is a nation that has reached out, would love very much to have um, a stronger relationship with the United States. We haven't been able to figure that out. Indonesia is an aircraft carrier that would allow us, the United States and like-minded partners to have a presence to exercise influence, not just militarily, but economically and have a very fulsome relationship in that part of the world. And we've not been able to get out of our own way because of Indonesia's corrupt past, but they're moving beyond that. And again, let's be frank, you've got the largest democratic nation in the world is India, the second is the United States, and the third is Indonesia, democratic nations. And we haven't been able to figure out how to have a strong, how to have a very strong and really deep relationship with Indonesia. So the arms race is in place, the quad exists, India, Australia, Japan, and the United States, that could be the quad plus. We could add other nations to that, not just to be a bulwark against Chinese uh, adventurism, 
but could also be the expansion of democratic democratic ideals. It sounds like a diplomat speaking, but I do think that's that's what we're trying to what we're trying to achieve. And I would also think that the United States would want to try to establish a military presence of some sort in India. We haven't been able to figure that out yet. Yeah, I mean, we, we, we've run out of the island nations that have supported us in the past, the Philippines. Uh, uh, Guam is inside of the arc of uh, penetration by, uh, by Chinese missiles. Chinese missiles are so good that even bringing aircraft carriers in, I mean, so the idea behind their missile technology and then putting them out on, 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 on islands in the South China Sea and, and creating islands uh, you know, as launch platforms is to increase range uh, to push the carriers far enough away that they can't reach without aerial refueling. And if you see aerial refueling, it's, it's extraordinarily vulnerable. Uh, and it also defeats any stealth technology. So, I mean, if you've got a refuel of stealth platform, you can't do that uh, in a stealth mode. And so all those things become very, very visible. So think of the Chinese as moving towards the uh, reunification of Taiwan by pushing the United States to the point where the cost in aircraft carriers and national prestige is something that we won't want to engage. Okay, so they're there. I mean, and it's, it goes right back to Sun Tzu when you talk about them. Uh, you know, the, the 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 warriors who need to fight have already lost the fight. Uh, you know, bottom line is push everything else to you don't have to fight. You win by uh, superior dominance in the space to prevent uh, prevent your adversary from, from gaining the advantage. And so that's where they're going. And so that that the arms race may not be missile for missile, okay, but it is to push the United States further out and to create tension with potential United States allies so that we can't develop the relationships we need. And I think the Philippines is a classic example of that. Yeah, that, that's the definition of asymmetry, which is going to work to everybody's advantage. Well, we're um, nearing the end of our conversation. There are a few questions um, that will not be answered live on today's call. So we'll be sure to reach out to those um, who have unanswered questions individually. Um, I want to give the final word to Peter. Obviously, this conversation has had um, a, a lot of military heavy, heavy conversations, what we like to say at Academy here, business follows the flag. Um, what do you think the audience should, what are the key takeaways, key, key, excuse me, key takeaways for our audience today, um, given the nature of this conversation, um, and how it applies to their operations and businesses and um, their activities in the markets? Yeah, so I think one thing is really looking at uranium, nuclear power again, and taking a closer look. How do we take advantage of that, either as an investor or when you're thinking as a company, where do you want your plants to be built? And I think nuclear is going to be an important part of that. I think it sounds like, you know, and going back, we didn't talk about it at the time, but France really started their nuclear program after the first oil crisis in 1974. So it's almost fitting and, you know, history repeats itself that we could see another expansion of nuclear power plants. So I think that's something people are supposed to take a look at. And I think maybe we're supposed to be a little bit more broad thinking when we talk about how are we going to replace fossil fuels. And if you're worried about, you know, your power supply, maybe it's countries that are adopting nuclear is going to be part of your expansion plan. So I think that's a big part of it. And then probably the part that surprised me more, but kind of just keeps hammering home is we're supposed to be thinking about space more where how is space going to play a part of our lives and you know what technology should we be building out which technology should we be investing in what should we be looking at doing that so i think really sitting back and spending time like where is space headed is a question i don't think many of us think about enough 
And I think that's going to be an important part. You're seeing companies, you know, we just yesterday, a company with um, satellite launching did was a taken over by a SPAC effectively. So it's a space that people are thinking about and out there. And I think we should all up, you know, our thinking in terms of it, because that's probably where there's huge opportunity in the coming decades. Final thing I'll say is Taiwan does scare me. The more we talk about this stuff and the more, you know, as we get pushed away from being able to, you know, engage with China, that just leaves Taiwan very vulnerable. And it ties into one other thing we've been talking about a lot with Taiwan is we are well aware of the military flyovers and things, but China is using economic pressure, political pressure. They're using pressure all across so that, again, if, if and when they decide to do something to Taiwan, the battle will already probably be over. Yes, uh, a very important point um, and certainly a element of all this posturing we're seeing around the globe. Um, just to highlight a piece of content from our team, um, we did do a space webinar and podcast uh, around this time last year. Please reach out to your academy representative if you're interested in that um, piece and we can send it your way. As always, we're so appreciative that you've taken the time to spend with us today. Um, if you do have any follow-up questions or if, as you're reading the news, ever have any questions that our advisory board can help support, please reach out to us at info at academysecurities.com or to your point of contact from our team. As Rachel mentioned, thank you everyone for taking the time to listen to our podcast today. And thank you to all of our contributors for sharing in this conversation. Academy Securities is a service-disabled, veteran-owned investment bank with a social mission to mentor, hire, and train military veterans to develop careers in finance. I'm your host, Andrew Robinson, and I look forward to speaking with you again soon.